So I believe that this is my second time giving this shear. And I believe, probably, if my memory is correct, that the first time I gave this shear, none of you were born. Because, yeah, why would clapping? Why not? Are you clapping for not having been born? That's what you clapping You know about the guys in the Calum? They were philosophizing one time. One was saying to the other, he says, you know, life is so difficult. Sometimes I think it would be better never to have been born. The other one, they're from Calum, right? You get the set, right? The other one says, yeah. But realistically, how many guys do you know who are that lucky? One out of a hundred? How many guys do you know who are never born? Like, so you're clapping for not being born? Okay, anyways, yeah. The last time I gave this share, I was living in uh, 41 Crown Street. So that had to have been the year 2000 or 2001, right after I got married in Tushin uh, Sama. So, probably you guys were born, what, 2001, 2002? Around that? Okay, so I really, literally, I think the last time I gave this year, and I actually even remember what this year was about. It was during, uh, it was during Sviro, and I gave this year about what will happen if Mashiach comes between Pesach Rishon and Pesach Sheni, does Klal uh, Yisrael have to all collectively be makriv of Korban Pesach Sheni? So that was what it was about. And to my credit, I just want to brag for a second. I researched that whole thing before the internet existed. <laughs> I was just thinking about that tonight. Yes! Now clap for me. Thank you. <laughs> I don't know if my research skills are as sharp anymore as they were back then. Okay. So... Uh, What's worse than finding a worm in your apple? Half a worm. Finding half a worm. That's correct. That's right. Now, since all of you are Torah scholars, Talmudic scholars, I will ask you, what's worse than finding half a worm in your apple? A quarter of a worm. What's worse than a quarter of a worm? An eighth of a worm. What's worse than an eighth of a worm? A sixteenth of a worm. What's worse than a sixteenth of a worm? One thirty-second of a worm. And what's worse than one thirty-second of a worm? One sixty-fourth of a worm. That is correct. Yes. Until finally, the worst possible thing is no worm at all, because then you ate all the worms. How many? You don't even know how many worms you ate. Probably a lot. Anyways. I'm going to tell you something. Now you can understand why that's the most difficult in a second. Based on uh, yesterday's Rambam. Right now we're in uh, Sefer Tara of the Rambam. And we're in the Halachas of... Tumas Tzeras, and in yesterday's Prokim, in Perek Zion, he speaks there in the beginning of Perek Zion about a very interesting din, very curious, very peculiar din, 
What happens if a person was seen by the Kain for a, uh, a nega, Tzaras, and then later he comes, that's where the Ramam sets up the scenario, that he was already quarantined, then he gets checked out later. The Ramam's like the Tetas Kehan. Anyways, um, he saw the, 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 the Kain sees the guy, and he checks him out, and what happened? He, he, now, now he doesn't have one lesion of Tzaras, but actually what happened is the Tzaras completely took over his entire body until his entire body is covered in Tzaras. And what's the din? Toher. He's Toher. He's completely pure. And this is what it says in the, the Pasuk. In, uh, it's an easy Pasuk to remember, by the way. It's Pasuk Yud Gimel, Yud Gimel. So you, have to, you only have to remember one number and then remember it twice. It's passage. Vayikra Yud Gimel. Yud Gimel, which is in Parshish Tazria, where it says, Kulay Hafach Lavan. If the guy completely became white, Taher, who the din is that he is Taher, he is, he is pure. So it's kind of a weird thing. That if you have a little bit of tzaras, so that's tamei. And if the, the tzaras gets a little bit bigger, then it's still tamei. And it gets bigger, and it's still tamei. It gets bigger and bigger until half of his body is tzaras, that's tamei. Three quarters of his body is tzaras, that's tamei. 99% of his body is tzaras, tamei. 100%? Tahir. Yeah, kind of weird, huh? So, this, of course, what I'm about to tell you is based on a sicha, the first sicha of Hashish Hazriya. And it's a long sicha, and it's worth looking inside. But part of the sicha concentrates on this concept of Kulei Hafach Lovan Taherhu, that when the person becomes entirely Taras like, and I'll stress the word like, Taras like. Now it's not Taras at all, it's, it's Taher. So uh, there are a couple of ways of looking at this din. A couple of approaches. One approach we'll call it Gzeres HaKasuf, and the other approach, we'll call it Svara. So the approach of Gzeres HaKasuf is what? And the rest of Tumantara does make sense to you? <laughs> what does it make sense? The whole thing is, the whole thing is supra-rational decrees. It's all illogical, or it's illogical, but it doesn't conform to human logic. It doesn't have to. So you're going to tell me it doesn't make sense that the guy is 50% Taras, he's Tomei, 90% Taras, Tomei, 99%, Tomei, 100%, oh, now he's thought. Yeah, okay, fine, but there's a lot of stuff that doesn't make sense. Then there's the other approach, which is Svara. Svara is, the Rebbe says basically this is the approach of Rashi. Rashi doesn't even comment on this Pasuk. 
You know what Pasuk it is, by the way? Yud Gimel, Yud Gimel. Who said that? It's good. Give him a raffle. Do we have raffle tickets? So, <laughs> the approach of Svara, which is like this. Here's the Svara. There is, there is a certain logic here. What's the logic? The logic is like this. The, uh, the appearance of the Nega is an aberration, meaning it's abnormal. It's a sickness. But if a guy is entirely Tzaras-like, then clearly for him, that's not an aberration. That's not abnormal. That's his normal. So it's not a sickness. That's just the way he is. And therefore, it's Poher. That's, that's a logical approach to it. Now, and this is the Mashiach shir, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, prepared for the right shir. So what does this have to do with Mashiach? In the Gemara, in Sanhedrin, the, uh, the Agarito that we call Chalik, call Yisrael Yeshlem Chalik Leilam Haba, it speaks there at length about different Simone Hagula, different things that are going to happen before Mashiach comes. And one of the things that it says is going to happen before Mashiach says, Amar uh, Yitzchak, Ein ben David Ba, Ad shenishapich, Kol hamalchus leminos. That ben David, Mashiach, is not going to come until all of the government, or perhaps you could even read it, all governments, become heretical. Amarava Maikra, so what the Gemara says. Amarava Maikra, what is your scriptural support? What is your proof text for this concept? That when the entire government, when all governments become corrupted, that is a sign that surely Mashiach will be here very soon. You know what Pasuket says? You'd give him, you'd give him, give him a raffle. That's right, he says, If he completely is Laban, completely white, then it's the din is Taher. So uh, we can look at this, we can look at this piece of Agarito, this Drush with the same two approaches how we look at the din. Now remember the two approaches, yeah? One was Zeres HaKasim, and the other one was Svara. And these really describe two perspectives on understanding all of history and the way that all of history eventually culminates in the coming of Mashiach. There's two ways of looking at this idea that eventually, ultimately, everything ends with Mashiach. 
Or maybe we should say everything truly begins. That's the real beginning. But everything as we knew it, the old way of things being, comes to an end. And how does that occur? There's two ways of looking at it. One is Zeres HaKosov, the other is Svara. So let's, let's look at it in the Zeres HaKosov point of view. The world gets worse and worse and worse and worse. And there's no sign of anything getting better. And the situation is so dysfunctional, there's no way, no, no, no possible way for it to resolve itself. And in the end, out of nowhere, Hashem just comes in and saves the day and brings Mashiach. Did it make sense? No, it didn't make sense. Was it a logical outcome of everything that came before it? No, but it doesn't have to be. You know, in ancient theater, in drama, like the Greeks used to do, they used to like uh, comedies and they used to like tragedies. But with tragedies, the whole, the whole kunst of a tragedy is like how much tragedy can you cause? How much, <laughs> how much tzoros can you make for the main character? And you make it worse and, you wor worse and worse and worse and worse until finally the story becomes so convoluted and, and the conflict becomes so insurmountable that at that point there's no way that <laughs> you could resolve the conflict at that point. Basically what happens is that the good writer is so good that he writes himself into a corner and there's no way to slap on a nice you know, American Hollywood ending where everything ends happy. There's no way to do it. So what they used to do is a real thing. It's an expression they use today idiomatically. It's an expression. They call it Deus Ex Machina, which is Latin, which literally means God out of the machine. They used to have a crane, like a little machine off stage. They used to have a crane, and they'd have an actor who would play one of their Avedazadas. And at the end of the play, when the conflict was so bad that there was no possible way that anything could be resolved, they would just fly one of these actors out on the crane, <laughs> like flying from one of these cranes, and he would be one of the, you know, one of their gods, one of their Avedazadas, and he would just say, poof, everything's better, it's all fixed. And that would be the end of the play, and everyone would, would clap, and they would be all happy. So there's definitely the approach to say that life could be like that, that history could be like that, that basically everything would get worse and worse and worse and worse, and there's really no natural way to get out of it. And in the end, the Abish just sends Mashiach. Does it make sense? No, it doesn't have to make sense. Was it a logical outcome of anything that came before it? No, it doesn't have to be. It could, be a, it could be a contrivance. It could be a deus ex machina. And that's what we call Xeres Akasif, that the whole Indian Mashiach could be totally out of nowhere, totally out of the blue, and that's fine. So, applying this to our Agatha, the Gemara Sanhedrin, you're going to tell me 
that the world's governments are going to get worse and worse and worse and worse and worse and worse and worse until they're so corrupted that there's not one good government. And then out of that context, you're going to have the perfect government of the Malchus Shindal Yud. That's totally counterintuitive. The answer is, yeah, it's okay. The whole thing's counterintuitive. Yeah, the whole thing's illogical. Don't worry about it. So that's one approach. You following? Yeah? Okay. But then there's another approach. What was the other approach? Swarov, a logical approach. Okay, so the logical approach, and we said with the din of Toherhu that the, the logic was, well, I don't know, I guess if the guy is entirely Tsaras-like, then that's his normal. So how are we going to apply that to, uh, to this Agatha? About Kola Malthus, Chisapach Leminus. All governments will become heretical, corrupt, dysfunctional. How is that a precursor for the perfect government of Mashiach? How do you explain that to me logically as a svara? So uh, I'll start like this. There's a story about the Friedrich Rebbe that the Friedrich Rebbe himself tells. Now most of us probably encountered this story in the Kuntres and Yonish Alteres Achsidis from the Rebbe. I believe it's in Reis Gimel there when the Rebbe is speaking about Siddhis has within it everything, Torah B'chal has within it everything, all truths, all isms, you know, the different isms that arose, the different ideologies in the world, that every ism has a little truth, but only Torah has all of their truths. So the Rebbe mentions there very in passing a story of the Friedrich Rebbe, but uh, the full story the Fidik Rebbe himself tells is in the Fidik Rebbe's Igris and the letters from Dalit Tevis Tuf Reish Tadik Ches. It was written in uh, Otvotsk. It's when the Fidik Rebbe was still in uh, Poland, before, a couple years before the Fidik Rebbe came to America. So, uh, in the the way it's described in Kutus and Yonah Shalteris the debate in the story, the Rebbe calls it Shitois Hamadiniois, different governmental systems. But uh, more in detail, the way the Fidel Rebbe tells the story, he says like this. He says, it was the winter of Tafresh Ayin Gimel. So it was like the winter of 1912-1913. Everyone knows when the Russian Revolution was? 1970. So this is Mamish three, four years before the revolution, before things were cooking up. I mean, things were already cooking up. And uh, the Vedic Rebbe says he was on a train to Petterburg, which was still the capital. Petterburg was the imperial capital. After the communists took over, they made the capital uh, Moscow. So the Fidegrever says that he was in the second class cabin. 
That's like, uh, I think it's like, that's called economy comfort. You guys fly in, there's like economy, and there's business class, and then you like economy comfort, right? You guys don't know? No? Okay. You never got an upgrade to economy comfort? You have like the extra half inch of legroom? Ever had it? So, uh, Fitting Evans says he was in the second class cabin. And who was in the second class cabin? I don't know who's in the first class cabin. All the dance deals guys are in the first class cabin. But who's in the second class cabin? He said in this particular train, it was Malukhalite. You know what that means? Malukhalite? I think it means like government workers. People who work for the government, probably bureaucrats and the like. Maybe, maybe nobility of some sort. And then he said also, um, Galochem, clergy, non Jewish clergy, probably uh, Eastern Orthodox, that's the, the religion, the big religion there. So that was in the second-class cabin. You had a bunch of government officials or nobility, and you had a bunch of clergy, priests, whatever. And they had a discussion. This is how the Fedegrebe describes it. They got into a discussion. Oh, and the Fedegrebe mentions, by the way, that that year, 1913, was the 300th anniversary of the Romanov family. You know the Romanov family? Cesar. Yeah, very good. You ever noticed on the bottle of Smirnoff, it says, I don't know if it says it anymore, but on the bottle of Smirnoff it says, purveyors to the Tsar, 1886 through 1917. It says on the bottle of Smirnoff that they made vodka for the Tsar from 1886 until 1917. Why did they stop giving the Tsar vodka in 1917? What? Well, there was no Tsar. There was no Tsar, yeah. Yeah, because they shot them all. They took the whole Romanov family to the basement, and they shot them all, and uh, they couldn't drink vodka after that. So that's why they stopped being purveyors, why Smirnov stopped being purveyors to the Tsar after 1917. Anyways, 1913 was the 300th anniversary of the Romanov family ruling Russia. And for whatever reason, the people in the second-class car that the Fiat was riding in got into a discussion about which form of government was more Eisgehalt in Alpitura. Remember, these were, some of them were clergy. These, they, were, they were Christian uh, priests, so they had obviously biblical knowledge. And they were arguing with Psukim with you know, proofs, trying to say which one was more biblically authentic. And one group was saying monarchy, which was the system at that time, the monarchy, the Romanovs, Tsar. And the other one was arguing for socialism, uh, which I think is very interesting. You know, like, you could really, you know, the... 
the zeitgeist of, of, of 1913, uh, it, it's actually remarkable to me that people discuss this so openly. Maybe they did so because they were more of privileged uh, class. Uh, but there was a group discussing the, the relative advantages of socialism, and the Friedrichgemeinde mentions also, as distinct from socialism, communism as well. That there were those who were arguing that communism is more authentic or more aligned with Toyota values. So the Vedic says, I did not want to get involved in this discussion. So I stayed out. But afterwards, there were some, some Jews came over to me and they asked what I said. So I said that every government form has some validity, has some legitimacy to it. Every uh, political theory, every way of looking at how to organize nations. Monarchy has a certain legitimacy. Socialism has a certain legitimacy. But none of them are perfect systems because they're man-made. So they're all a bunch of falsehood with a little bit of truth. And only Torah is all truth. And not only is Torah all truth, but any of the truth that's in any of these political systems is found in Torah. So it's interesting that the Frederick Rebbe was was saying that there is, <laughs> there's an argument to be made for every kind of ism that it has some truth to it. But none of them ultimately have all of the truth. It's remarkable, really, especially if you think about later what the communists would do to the Friedrich Rebbe. And yet he was able to say with objectivity. Remember, this, this incident happened in 1913. But the letter was being written in 1928 in Poland. There's a reason why, why the Vietnam was in Poland. Because the, the Russians tried to kill him. So can you imagine that the Vietnam was able to write with such objectivity and to say, basically, the governmental system that tried to well, they did torture him and committed barbarous acts, evil acts on him and his succession. That there's some legitimacy to their worldview. I mean, to me, it's, it's, it's remarkable. To me, it's remarkable. The nuance, the nuance there, the ability to see. Shades of gray. I mean, you ask today your average, well, I, would, I was going to say, you ask your average uh, religious Jew walking down Kingston Avenue, but really, you could ask anyone, Lahavdil, in the whole country, the whole world maybe now, because things are so polarized, and you'd ask people, you know, which is the correct and legitimate worldview, 
whatever, whatever they believe is the correct and little legitimate worldview, they're going to say that that one's 100% correct and the other one's 100% flawed and there's absolutely no nuance. They say it's basically because of the, uh, the search engines, the search engine bubbles. <laughs> basically, Google figures out what you like and just, just keeps giving you more and more of the same of what you already believe in until finally you get caught in a search engine bubble where you just see more and more of the same things you already believe, but to keep you hooked, it gives you increasingly radical versions of what you already believe in, and then that's it. Then you think the whole world believes like you. And then anyone who doesn't believe like you is crazy and completely wrong, and there's nothing to talk about. Which, uh, yeah, that's... <clears throat> That's why there's no political discourse today. Just people writing uh, angry rants. But the Friedrich spoke about it in such a nuanced, objective way that, like, look, all these isms, they have some legitimacy, but ultimately they're human, they're human attempts at governance, and therefore none of them can be perfect. I'll tell you, Lahab, the Winston Churchill said, that democracy is the worst form of government devised by man until it's compared to all of the other forms that have been tried. And, and it's, it's very witty, and it's probably true. But what, what does he basically say? He's admitting that democracy is a lesser of evils. You know that expression, the lesser of two evils. So this isn't two evils, this is, I don't know, hundreds of evils. Every different form of government being a different evil. And democracy just happens to be the most benign of those evils. And he says very clearly, not that Winston Churchill was such a mystic, and I don't think he had any spiritual intent when he said this, but he said it's the worst form of government devised by man. Meaning to say, look, what do you want from me? And this is the implication of what Churchill was saying. What do you want from me? Human attempts at governance are always going to be flawed. So democracy is also flawed. It's just the least flawed of all the flawed. And basically, you could look at human history as a series of people trying and rejecting various forms of flawed ways to organize and rule over people. So they try this form until they get sick of it and they throw it out. And they try another form until they get sick of it and they throw it out. And then they try another form. And that's basically the story of humanity is trying different systems that are broken and dysfunctional and corrupt. And just switching them for other systems which you hope are a little bit less dysfunctional, a little bit less corrupt. And that's history. That's, that's, that's the story of mankind. The question is, how long can this type of dysfunction persist? I mean, if you have a car, that you have to bring it into the shop every two weeks, but they fix it every time. They get it running, and then two weeks later, you have to bring it in again. And then they get it running again. Is that manageable or is that unmanageable? So you say that government is a little bit like that. Everybody accepts the fact that all government is essentially corrupt. Or what's the saying? That uh, power corrupts. So inherently, any system of government is going to be flawed. And every 
everyone accepts it, and we just try to find the least amount of flaws, or the least contemptible flaws, the flaws that interfere the least with, with our pleasure, with our pursuit of whatever our values are. But we, 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 we basically admit that either, <laughs> what, what can you do? Either the government is going to be able to protect us but take away our rights. I'm just giving you an example of a, of a conflict. Either they're going to be able to protect us, but they're going to take away our rights. Or they'll give us our rights, but they won't be able to protect us. You're on your own, right? And you just have to pick the one that's the least bad. And everyone knows that politicians are corrupt, and they're all bribed, and they're all... You know, there's the discussion right now whether uh, members of Congress should even be able to buy stock because they pass laws that manipulate the stock market. And uh, basically, it's going to continue because everybody knows that that's part of being elected to Congress is you get to manipulate the stock market. <laughs> that's, that's just part of the... Just, when you steal, just don't, don't go overboard. Just don't steal too much, right? So basically, that's, that's life. The people in charge are corrupt. The system is corrupt. And hopefully we'll just we'll find a system that's the, that's the least disruptive to our lives. So I want to tell you something. That way of looking at things is is sick. The biggest sickness is when you think you don't have a sickness. Or when you rationalize that your sickness isn't so bad. You know what it means to rationalize? Rational lies. <laughs> lies that you tell yourself that make sense. Well, you know, everyone is corrupt. So this one, this one works out the best for us. So let's, let's just keep rolling with it. It can't go on like that forever. There has to eventually come a time where we're going to say, no, I'm saying we, like, not just the Jewish people, collectively, humanity, the entire world, the entire world has to get up and say, we're not okay with being ruled by corrupt leaders. We're not okay with being under the power of, of dysfunctional systems. We want something perfect. We're not okay with just going from one imperfect system to the next. But you know, the only way to get there, to get to that point, is uh, like they say, sometimes in order to get better, first you have to hit rock bottom. So collectively, humanity has to hit rock bottom. And what that means is, humanity has to say, we have come to the conclusion that every government and all governments are systemically broken. You know what that means, systemically broken? There's not like an aspect of it that's broken and needs to be fixed. The whole system is broken. The power structures are systemically flawed. The corruption is baked into it. And we're not going to tolerate it. We're not going to stand for it anymore. We want something else. We want something new. So this is the svara. This is the logical explanation 
of why one of the Simone Hagula, one of the harbingers, one of the signs, harbingers is one of those words that you only use when you talk about Mashiach. So it's like tabernacle. <laughs> those English words that we only use in Jewish context. Yeah. Okay. Ever go to the TSA and explain to the guy, these those are my phylacteries, right? I'm like, I don't know what phylacteries are. Okay. Um, so one of the harbingers of Mashiach is Kolomalchus, not just the entire government, but governments collectively, all governmental systems, Tisapeth, Laminus, they'll all be recognized as heretical, as corrupt, as broken. <laughs> And that itself, the fact that nobody is going to rationalize anymore and make an argument that, well, you know, this political party's not so bad. They have many of their interests aligned with our values. Enough, guys. Enough. We don't want human-made political interests. We don't want to rely on the graces of supposedly enlightened people. We reject all of it as corrupt and broken. And not only we, the Jewish people, but the whole world has to collectively say, none of this works. We're done. We're fed up. And you can see this going on in the world that there's a certain cynicism, a certain... Uh, I mean, people are getting exhausted. They're getting tired of, of the corruption, of the lies, of the brokenness. There was a poll, I thought this was very funny. About 10 years ago, they asked Americans, who do they trust for news? And among all of the different uh, you know, reporters from all the news channels, Far and away, the, the highest regarded source for news was actually a comedian. <laughs> it was a Jewish comedian, actually. John Stewart, the Jewish comedian, was considered by most Americans as more reliable than the actual reporters. And, and I think there's something, you know, sort of gishmak about the idea that collectively people are getting to a certain point of... of They're no longer they're no longer buying what the media is selling, and they're no longer content to just work within the system. And, and there's there's a certain there's a certain uh, wholesale rejection of governments in general and institutions of power. You know, like oh, the discussion, you know, about about the police, whether, whether the institution of the police is redeemable or not. Now, the, the Rebbe says, when Mashiach comes, we're going to have shayfim, but no shayfim. So, ultimately, there is no there's no police when Mashiach comes. But the question, the whole it's a very Mashiachic question: is the is there 
an institution that's flawed and you can fix the flaws? Or is it systemically broken and the whole thing needs to be discarded? So here's what I'm going to tell you. The fact that this is becoming a prevalent attitude and a common attitude in the world at large is very mishifted. The fact that people are saying, no, the systems are broken, the institutions are broken, the old way of doing things is inherently flawed and there's no way to redeem it. Ah, so might I interest you in a new alternative? Something completely new that the world has never tried. Let's perhaps entertain the notion of a world ruled by its creator as represented by his king, a Davidic heir, a Torah scholar who will administer justice according to the Holy Torah. Now, you think that sounds so far-fetched that the world's going to go for that? Okay, no problem. We can always go to the Xerxes of attitude toward history, and you could say that there's nothing logical about Mashiach coming, and in the end, at the last moment, the buzzer beater shot, right? Tenth of a second left, left on the shot. You're down by two, and you sink the three, except it's not even sinking the three. It's like a ten-point shot. It's like a hundred-point shot. It's like a shot that doesn't even exist. It doesn't even make sense that it would happen. You could look at it the Xeris of Kassim view, or you could say, no, it's a spot, it makes a lot of sense. The world's fed up with the way things have been running for the past 5,000, however many years that people have been governing themselves. And we hit rock bottom, we're ready for Mashiach to govern the world. So when it all turns dysfunctional, that itself. <laughs> is a sure sign that things are going to become very functional very, very soon. So does, does this make sense to everyone? Mm -hmm. yeah. 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 Okay. All right. Thank you.